Well, good morning, Community Faith. It's good to see you today. Uh, once again, congratulations to all of you graduates, uh, whether it's high school or college. I know it's an exciting time for you and uh, a time of transition, and uh, those are always just fun times. Uh, there's some adventure ahead, I'm sure, for each one of you and wherever you are going. And so um, we'll continue to pray for you. You know, what's interesting is that the time of life that you're in as a graduate, especially if you're graduating from high school, you're kind of on the the back end of this place in life where we look at our parents and we think that they have kind of lost their minds, that even though they've lived a lot longer than we have, that we know better how to live than our parents do. And maybe you've even had this thought, graduates, uh, maybe you graduated years ago, adults, parents, grandparents. There's something about being that age that we think, I will never be like my mom. <laughs> I will never be like my dad. I'll never live like they do. I can remember a time for me when I was growing up, my dad was a seatbelt, uh, I mean, captain. He, he wanted to make sure that every single time we got in the truck and we were gonna go somewhere that we were going to wear our seatbelts. And on this particular day, my dad drove a 1970s Chevrolet pickup. And back in the 70s, they didn't make pickups like they do now where everything's plastic and soft. It was solid steel, like the whole dash was steel. I think there was a little bit of padding across the top. And uh, so we're driving down the road and my middle brother decided he was gonna take his seatbelt off and he stood up in the seat. My dad very calmly said, Dad, I need you to put your seatbelt on and sit back down. He just looked at my dad and grinned. And my dad was never the dad that ever said things twice. <laughs> there was once and then you suffer the consequences for your actions. And so in that moment, Thad looked at him smiled, and my dad gave the brakes a little love tap, and quickly my brother found himself in the floorboard um, after hitting the dash. So uh, very uncomfortable. In, my, in that moment, I thought to myself, man, I, I can't believe my dad just did that. I would never do that to my kids. <laughs> Fast forward to a few years ago, driving home in Fairfield, not far from my house, and I look in my rearview mirror, and my youngest son is standing up in his booster seat and he had that same grin on his face. And I said, Cam, I need you to sit down. We're not home yet. Put your seatbelt on. He's like, but we're almost home. I said, but we're not home yet. I need you to sit down. He just kept grinning. And everything in me was saying, <laughs> no, 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 Wes. No, no, don't, no, no, no. Yes, 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 yes. And so I gave the brakes a love tap. And quickly, Cam found himself right up against the back seat of the seat I was sitting in and fell into the floorboard. The difference is he stood up and he said, do it again, dad. And I was like, this is not how this was supposed to go. That is not the consequence I was going for. And then I thought about that later and I said, man, I am turning into my dad. I am, I am beginning to do just what I said I would never do. And I tell you that story today because it sets us up for the question that we're gonna answer. We've been walking through difficult questions, looking for some real answers for those difficult questions over the last several weeks in our teaching series called Ever Wonder Why. And today, I want that to kind of be the backdrop for us. I mean, how many of you have ever done something? Well, actually, let's just, let's just shorten the window. How many in the last week or two have done something that you didn't want to do, only to find yourself doing that very thing? Anybody? Okay, we got a few more people. All right, there we go. We're, a little, we're waking up. I know it was a, it was a really early morning because we woke up at like 2.30 uh, to the sound from the sky. And so I know that we're dragging a little bit. I am gonna ask you to participate in some things today because I think it helps us stay awake. And I feel a lot of pressure that I don't want you to fall asleep while I'm talking. So um, 
But that's, that's the idea. And ultimately, the question that we want to answer today is simply this. Why do I do what I don't want to do? Why is it that I find myself doing the things that I said I would never do? I don't know if you can resonate with that, if you can connect with that, if you've felt that, or maybe you're even living in the frustration of that right now in this moment. But what I want to do today is I want to look at Romans chapter 7 and I think answer the question, but then also spend a little bit of time drawing in some application on how we can not just know the answer to this, but we can live out this truth and understanding of the answer to this question in our time together. So let's start Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14, written by a man named Paul. If you've been in church for very long, you've heard about Paul, Paul the apostle. Paul was someone who was a religious man. He was devout. He was very, very concerned about his faith and doing all the right things in his faith so that his life looked right, so that he would be acceptable to God. That's, that's how the first half of his life was spent. But then he meets Jesus. You can read about that in the book of Acts. He meets Jesus. Jesus um, shows him what it really looks like to have a relationship with his heavenly father that he's always desired, and he steps into that. And he begins to recognize the difference between living for a religious system and living in a relationship with Jesus. And so as a mature Jesus follower, Paul writes this passage, and we're going to pick up in verse 14 of Romans 7. It says this, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, sold into bondage to sin, for I do not understand what I am doing. Notice he's using present tense. He's not saying sometime in my past. He's saying right now, in this moment. As a Jesus follower, for I do not understand what I'm doing, for I am not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. What he's saying in this moment is he's saying, I hate the sin in my life. I don't enjoy it, but I still find myself doing it. He's like, man, I, I want to live a specific way, but it seems like everything in me is opposing that way of living. He continues on says, but now, no longer am I the one doing it. That's an interesting statement. He's saying, I'm not the one doing these things, specifically the things that he doesn't want to do. He said, that's, that's not me doing that, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. He's saying, that's not me. What Paul is saying, he's saying, there's a, there's a new identity that I have. I am no longer the one that is doing this. What he's saying, he's saying that the, the, the script of his life has been turned upside down. As he begins to follow Jesus, his life begins to look different. It takes on a new identity. Ultimately, the battle for his soul has been won when he placed his faith in Jesus. And so his identity begins to change. And he begins to explain that, but he's saying, even though my identity has changed and I understand this about myself, and that that's not me anymore. I still have the sinful desires. They still exist. They're still present in my life. And then he uses this word flesh. Now, what does that mean? What he's not talking about is he's not talking about our epidermis. He's not talking about our bones and our muscles and our tendons and our ligaments and, and everything that makes up our physical body. He's actually talking about everything about us. If you think about maybe some of the most destructive or evil desires that maybe you have in your life, they're probably not physical desires. Things like pride and hatred, 
They don't come from anything physically, they come from our minds. And so what Paul is talking about when he says the word flesh, and you can, you can tie this to anywhere he says flesh in the New Testament when he's writing about the flesh or living in the flesh, what he's talking about is the totality of his sinful nature. The same thing that is true for you and I. Whether you're a Jesus follower or not, every single one of us have that sinful nature in us. It is hardwired into who we are. So what he's doing is he's saying, hey, listen, you, you've stepped into this relationship with Jesus, so you've got two natures going on. There are two different versions of you, and they're at war with each other. There's a battle going on. They don't like each other, and they're fighting for your soul. But the battle's already been won. So one side is fighting from a place of loss, while the other fights from a place of victory. I don't know if you've paid attention this week, but there's been a little bit of a conflict going on in the sports world. There's a guy, a football coach at the University of Alabama named Nick Saban. And Wednesday night, I believe it was, Nick Saban decided to throw some shade at Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher. So Jimbo Fisher decided he would respond the next morning and he began to throw crazy shade at Nick Saban. There's a battle going on. They are competing with each other. So just imagine for a second, if, if Nick and Jimbo were sitting down here on this front row, if you just looked at them, you would maybe think, you know what, I think they're okay, they're fine. But inside, they don't like each other. They despise one another. They want to take each other out. This is the kind of conflict that Paul is talking about. There's this battle going on. Now, I know some of you are wondering, you're like, okay, Wes, but who, so, so Jimbo and, and Nick Saban, so which one represents good and which one represents evil? Don't shoot the messenger. Jimbo starts with a J. There's another guy whose name starts with J. His name is Jesus. And then there's Saban, and if you just swap out one letter in Saban's last name, you get Satan. So all, I'm, just, I'm just delivering the message to you. You interpret it how you want to. I know some of you are like, man, I don't, I don't like this guy. I don't know that I can listen to any more that he says today. Uh, I'm just messing around. But do you see the conflict that's happening? This is what Paul's talking about. So it continues on. He said, but the sin that dwells in me, for I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Continues in verse 20. But if I do the very thing that I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. I mean, it's just like back and forth. I mean, even just to read this is confusing. It can be, uh, you're like, man, I, I don't know that I'm understanding this fully. What in the world is he talking about? And then verse 21, he says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Like, I, I think honestly, I could pause right there and say that that's my life verse. It's not the one that inspires me, but it might be the most accurate representation of my life. I want to do good. I have the desire to, to grow in my faith. I have the desire to do the right things, but oftentimes I look back and I reflect on my life and I begin to think, you know what? I'm not making the progress that I wish I could make. I begin to struggle. This is what Paul's talking about. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, the law which is in my body's parts. You see, this sin, this sinful nature, doesn't just disappear the moment we place our faith in Jesus. And that's what Paul wants us to recognize. And then look at verse 23, I mean 24. Wretched man that I am. I sense when I read that 
phrase that there's a lot of passion, there's a lot of exhaustion, maybe desperation as Paul writes that, wretched man that I am. I think he's asking the question, I think he's reflecting on the same thing that that question proposes. Why do I do what I don't want to do? And he's frustrated with it, he's discouraged by it. And then he asks the question, who will set me free from the body of this death? He asks this question, I think it's rhetorical in this moment as he's writing this to the Romans. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is packed with truth, just this little bit. I mean, everything we've read is packed with truth. But what Paul is saying is he's saying, I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm frustrated with this. Why do I continue to struggle with some of the things that I know I shouldn't be struggling with anymore? And then he asks the question. It's as if he wants to remind himself and also remind the reader and remind us this morning, who is the one that sets you free? And he says, Jesus. It's important for us to recognize. It's important for us to remember that when we consider the question, why do I do what I don't want to do? Because when we ask that question, we're asking it from a place of frustration, disappointment, even in ourselves. What Paul wants us to see is he's wanting us to see, hey, listen, there is a battle, there is a struggle going on, but that struggle doesn't have to define who you are. That struggle doesn't disqualify you from God's grace, from God's love. It doesn't disqualify you from who he wants you to be and where he wants you to go in your life. You see, I think we, we can get discouraged, but I think it's important for us to understand this, that rather than being discouraged, be encouraged by the struggle going on. The fact that you recognize a struggle is an indication that there's a battle going on. You see, I think someone who's never stepped into this relationship with Jesus doesn't see the struggle the same way. So the fact that you recognize it should be encouraging to you. Because what you do and the things that you practice, even on your worst days, don't define who you are. They can be frustrating. You see, I think we have this misunderstanding when we step into our relationship with Jesus that we think and we assume that in that moment, life is gonna be easier. Not just life in general, but the way that we live and the, the habits and the tendencies and the addictions that maybe can control us at times, we think that those are gonna lose their power over us. And they do lose their power over us except we like to give the power back. You see, the enemy has no power over you except for the power that you allow him to have because Jesus arrived not just to bring forgiveness for you and I, but to bring freedom. Not one day in eternity, but in this life today. And so I think we see the answer to this question, why do I do what I don't want to do? Well, there's a, there's a real struggle going on in our lives. And we're gonna continue to struggle with that. And it's got powers behind it that we feel and that we wrestle with. But it ultimately has no direct impact on the rest of our life that, that, that puts us in a specific place. It doesn't dictate who I am. It doesn't claim identity over me because my identity is in Jesus. And so I want us to understand that, but I want us to also understand how do we, how do we live in light of that? How do, we, how do we begin to process that in our everyday life? And so as we think about that, I don't wanna stop there. I want us to consider a few other passages as we think about Jesus is the one who sets me free. Jesus is the one who brings forgiveness, but he's also the one that brings freedom. Look what Colossians 2 verse 13 says, and when you were dead, this is what Paul's talking about. 
when you were dead, for the wages of sin is death. That's every single one of us. We're born into that. Dead in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. How? Well, he goes to the cross. He lived the perfect life. He's the only person in the history of the world to ever do that. He goes to the cross, gives his life in our place so that you and I could have life, so that we could go from being dead to being made alive together with him. It's important for us to know that with him, having forgiven us and all our wrongdoings, having canceled the certificate of death of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. We feel that, we know that. We live in a hostile world. We live in a world where the brokenness and the sin and the dysfunction and the corruption has impacted our lives. We feel that. We're responsible for some of that hostility because a lot of it exists even in us. He's talking about that and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It has been defeated. Paul is writing this in Colossians to the church in Colossae, and he's saying, hey, listen, all the sin, everything that's responsible for the death and destruction and discouragement and, and, and everything that is wrong and bad in our world has been conquered, has been defeated. But then he goes on to say this, which is important for us for today. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, him being Jesus. You see, when Jesus did what he did, he wasn't just paying for the debt of our past. He did it to destroy the work of the enemy. Satan, the devil, the enemy, he's a loser because he's lost. The battle is over. He can't win. Look what 1 John 3, 8 says. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devils, like the devil. There's no Tom Brady moment that's gonna happen for the enemy. I mean, for some of you that are sports fans, if you've ever sat and watched your favorite team uh, in, a, in a sporting competition, there's, there's kind of that moment, and sometimes it's early in a game, sometimes it's the last second, but it's that moment where you can finally relax and know there's no possible way for the opponent to make a comeback. The game is over. This is what these passages are trying to show us and trying to point us to. It's reminding us and it's reminding the enemy that he's lost. And so when you and I find ourselves in this struggle, becoming victims of, of the things that we don't wanna do anymore, and we find ourselves continuing to do those things, we need to understand and realize that we're not fighting and struggling for victory, we're struggling and fighting from a victory the victory that Jesus accomplished for us on our behalf. At the end of our time together here in just a few minutes, we're gonna take communion together. We're gonna take the bread, we're gonna take the cup, and we're gonna remember what Jesus accomplished for us. We do that every week at Community of Faith. As Jesus followers, it's important for us to associate with the sacrifice of Jesus. What we see and what we're remembering in that moment is that what Jesus accomplished for himself on the cross, he also accomplished for us. He defeated death, he defeated sin, so that you and I could live in the reality of that. So when we take communion today, that's what we remember, that's what we're thinking about. Let me show you one more passage, Ephesians chapter six, verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord. When I think about that question that came in, why do I do what I don't want to do? I don't think that's coming from a place of strength. It's probably coming from a place of weakness, frustration that maybe there's this cycle or this pattern of stumbling on over the same thing. 
This passage says, be strong, not in your own strength, but be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the, notice it doesn't say power, it says the schemes of the devil, because the devil has no power over you. But he says, be aware of the schemes. You have to be aware of his tactics. So what are his schemes? I'm going to spend the remainder of our time talking about his schemes, because it's a scheme and a tactic that's been going on since the very, very beginning. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and you read about Adam and Eve in the garden. Everything's perfect, and then the enemy shows up, and he begins this cycle, this pattern of deception, temptation, and accusation, and then it just continues to repeat itself. And not only did he do that all the way back in the garden, but he continues to do it today, and it impacts our lives, even as Christ followers. Even if you're somebody who's trusted Jesus for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we find ourselves wrestling with this same pattern. This is the scheme of the enemy. The first one is deception. The enemy wants to deceive you. Jesus describes Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44, as the father of lies, Jesus specifically said later, he said, I have come so that you may have life and have life to the full. But he says that the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. He says that the enemy wants to still kill and destroy. He wants to wreck your life. He's in complete direct conflict with what God has for your life. Jesus speaks about this. What the enemy wants to do is he wants to take everything that you believe to be true and turn it around to be false. He wants to take everything that you think is false and turn it into truth. That's his agenda. That's what he's doing. He uses deception to do this. And so he begins to tell us lies. We begin to believe some of these subtle lies. Maybe the lie for you is this idea of you can do this. You don't need God. You don't need God's power. You don't need anybody else. You don't need people around you. You don't need anybody that loves God and loves you to help you make it through this life. You got this. You're gonna be just fine. So when life gets difficult, you'll be fine. And we begin to deceive ourselves like the serpent did with Eve saying, you don't need God. You got this. You can handle this. You're strong enough for this. My wife, a couple weeks ago, decided to buy my boys each a bag of Mrs. Baird's miniature donuts. I don't know if I have any fans in the room of those little um, delicious, heavenly pieces of breakfast food. Uh, I, I love them, and my wife decided to buy those, and she didn't buy them for me. She bought them for my boys. Problem is, my boys didn't eat them fast enough, so I ate it for them. I wanted to make sure they didn't go bad, so the very next day, I ate a bag and a half on my day off, like, and didn't even, didn't even think about it, and then I felt bad. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't have any self-control, and my boys are gonna come home this afternoon and they're gonna wanna eat some more donuts when they get home from school and I've eaten all of their donuts. So I ran to H-E-B and I ran into some of you while I was there and I had three bags of Mrs. Baird's donuts in my hands. And you're like, three, you only have two boys. That's right, I needed another bag. But I have no self-control and I deceive myself to believe that I can control myself in that moment. And I don't have it. I've deceived myself and I think that's what that's one of the lies we begin to believe. We begin to believe, I, I got this. I can handle this. And it turns us into control freaks where we wanna dictate everything that's happening and control everything that's going on so that we can determine the outcome for our life, a life of worth, a life of value, a life of accomplishment, a life that's, that's acceptable. I heard this week, uh, Rod Long was sharing his story. He goes to church here. He's been here 
probably since the beginning of Community of Faith, and he was sharing a little bit of what God's been doing in his life on Wednesday night at the prayer night that we have every week. And if you've never been to that, I wanna invite you to, to be there this Wednesday. But he was sharing a little bit, and he made this statement, and I wrote it down as I was taking some notes, because it just it really hit me right between the eyes. But he said this, he said specifically, he said, there's always destruction in the wake of a control freak. And I was like, man, yep. I say that's true because I've seen that in my own life because I believe the lie that I can do this, that I've got this, I can handle this. Maybe that's not the lie you believe. Maybe the lie you believe or that you've wrestled with at times in your life is that you'll always be like this. There's no hope for you. This is just the way that you were born. This is just the way that you are. And we, we can go two different directions with that. We can go one direction where we begin to think, I'm, I'm so proud of who I am. I mean, who I am is so incredibly awesome. If everybody else in the world could be like me, then man, the world would just be a better place. This is just the way that I am. I'm adventurous. I, I like risk. And you know, sometimes that causes some problems in my life or in the lives of those people around me. But at the end of the day, that's just who I am. They just kind of have to accept that. Or maybe it goes in a different direction for you and you begin to get discouraged when you think, man, this is just the way that I am. I was born this way. My parents were this way. My grandparents were this way. I'm just another one in the generational cycle of chaos. This is just who I am. We become discouraged with that. Maybe it's not either one of those. Maybe for you, it's this idea that if you want people to like you, then you need to change something about yourself. And so we begin to run after things to accumulate more, whether it's clothes or fancy houses or fancy cars or something to make us feel better so that we can feel more worth worthy to the people around us. And maybe people will like us more. We run after a certain specific career. We participate in things on the weekends that, that, that we think that's what everybody wants us to do. Or we begin to think to ourselves, if, if we want to be free, then I just need to fix it myself. We begin to believe these lies and they're incredibly dangerous. And the biggest problem with this is that when we entertain these lies, when we listen to this deception, then we continue to live in the same prison that we've always lived in, even before we met Jesus, failing to recognize that the prison door has been left wide open and you've been declared not guilty because of what Jesus did. But the enemy doesn't want you to hear that. Why doesn't the enemy want you to know that? Because he knows what you're capable of. And he wants to hold you back. He wants to push you down. He wants you to never see the freedom that is available to you. He wants you to live in that discouragement and that dysfunction. Never able to realize the potential of what God wants to do in your life and through your life. I mean, you begin to have these thoughts sometimes. Maybe you leave church and you begin to think, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to put some action to what I've heard. You begin to think, I'm gonna take some steps because my marriage isn't what it needs to be and so I need my marriage to be better and then the enemy starts to speak, starts to deceive, says, what's the point? Your marriage isn't gonna get any better. You've tried stuff before. It never worked before. Why would you do it now? Why would you consider praying with your family before you go to bed every night? Because you're never gonna be the dad or the mom that maybe you think you can be. Why would you ever wanna live generously and give back some of your resources or some of your time in order to make an impact in a church or in the community around you? It's not gonna make the impact that you want it to make. Why would you even consider doing that? Oh, you wanna grow together with other people, people who love you and love God, and you think that that's gonna make your life better? That's not gonna make your life better. And we begin to hear these lies, we begin to listen to these lies. So instead of jumping in and connecting with people in this community of faith that we find ourselves in, we decide, you know what? I'm not gonna connect, I'm not gonna take a step out, I'm not gonna be vulnerable, I'm gonna stay back, and I'm just gonna be another face in the crowd. I don't need to volunteer 
they don't need me. It's a big church. They don't need me to make a difference in the lives of other people. It is a big church. They don't care about me. How could they possibly care about me in a church that size? We're going to believe the lies of the enemy. Why is he lying? Because he knows what you're capable of. He knows what we're capable of. So I think we have to ask ourselves a couple questions when we think about deception. The first question is simply this, what lies am I listening to? What are the lies? Can you identify what those lies are? It's just the way that I am. I just need this and then my life will be okay. I'll always be an addict. I'll always mishandle relationships and create dysfunction in the lives of the people close to me. This is just the reality of my situation. This is who I am. What are some of those lies that you find yourself believing? And you may not have all the answers to this question this moment, but I think that these, are, these are some questions that you can begin to process over the next several days. The next question is simply this, am I actively fighting lies with what God says? You know what, if somebody starts talking about my wife or my two boys, and they start to speak lies about my family, you know what I do? I don't say, oh, you know what, you're right, you're right. No, I go, to, I go on the defense, because I don't know that anybody needs to hear anything untrue about my family. I wanna protect my family, and so I wanna speak truth. So when I hear lies about something that I care about, I speak truth in defense of what's being lied about. It's interesting that sometimes in our own lives when the enemy begins to speak lies to us, we fail to combat those lies. And what needs to be recognized this morning is that the enemy has been around for millennia. He is an expert on deception. And so you need more than your own mirror to begin to reveal to you the truth that you need to push back the lies of the enemy. James chapter one describes the Bible as being a mirror for us. As we look into it, we begin to see truth about ourselves, truth about God, and it reminds us and the enemy the truth about ourselves, that we are loved, that we are accepted, that our life has purpose, that we are forgiven, that we're not who we are on our worst day. As we begin to remind ourselves of this truth, as we continue to jump into God's word, we begin to push back the deception of the enemy. So where are we pushing back these lies with the truth that the Bible has specifically for us? So we have deception, and the second thing is this, temptation. We have temptation that's one of the schemes of the enemy. You see, we think about specific things in our lives that's unique to every single one of us. As we think about those things, we begin to care about those things. As we care about those things, we'll begin to chase those things. The enemy knows this. He's an expert on temptation. He's an expert in what you love, what you pursue. And so what he wants to do is he wants to, he wants to get your attention with something that he knows you'll care about. And you're just going about your day, and it's like, oh, hi. As you begin to think about it, it begins to capture your attention. It leads you to a place of action, to respond, to go after it. It's this moment of temptation, but it always leads to a place of destruction, to a place of devastation. You know, it's interesting, over the last few years, maybe you've heard some of these stories. We live in a selfie culture, and that's not always bad, but it's led some really severe consequences for some people. You've heard stories of people that have gone to these really high buildings, skyscrapers, or these massive cliffs in different parts of the country, all to get to the very edge so that they can take a picture of themselves and post it on their Instagram or their Facebook uh, and get all the likes that they could possibly get. The problem is, is there have been times where those people have gone to those places to take the selfie only to fall off the edge. And I share that story because I, that's what temptation looks like. The enemy wants to bring us all the way to the edge and get us leaning over the edge so that we would ultimately fall off and it would lead to our destruction. 
that's his desire. That's what he wants because he hates you. And it's not because of who you are. It's because of who you're connected to and who you represent, God himself. As a follower of Jesus, the enemy wants to take you out. And so I think it forces us to ask some other questions. Maybe it's, first question is this, what is my primary area of temptation? We all have different preferences. We all have different interests and things that, that catch our attention and, and draw us into certain places and spaces. What is that primary area of temptation for you? You know, it's not the same for everything. Like we can go, about, go down the 10 commandments and you begin to look at those. You're like, well, that one's not really an issue for me. That one's not really an issue for me. There are things that, there are things in my life that annoy me. Um, one of those is anybody who drives in the fast lane but doesn't know how to drive fast. Like that bothers me. Anybody with me? Like anybody like me? Oh, okay, all right, good. You're still with me. All right, awesome. Um, listen, Hesitations chapter 12, verse one says, thou shalt drive faster. Okay, um, I just made that up. There is no hesitations, chapter 12, just in case you're like, oh, I've never heard that verse before. I'm gonna get a tattoo on my arm. Don't do it. Other things that annoy me are people who like to talk loud while I'm trying to watch a movie in the theater, especially if they combine that with eating loud. I'm like, bro, you better, you better shut your mouth. But you know what's interesting? And never in any of those moments when I've been incredibly annoyed by something that's a pet peeve for me, have I ever had the thought, you know what, I'm gonna take him out. I'm just, I'm gonna take his life. Like, that's not a temptation for me. I don't, my anger doesn't ever get to that level. But you begin to think about, what is it for you? Is it a substance? Is it a, is it a tendency, a habit that, that you seem to always find yourself in? I can tell you about a significant struggle that I had several years ago, right out of high school, first few years of college. It was wrapped around lust and sexual sin, pornography. And it, it kind of showed up out of nowhere. My roommates and I started living in this particular house and the landlord had cable television already set up for us. And it was interesting, after being in the house for a few weeks, each one of us on our own discovered that part of the cable subscription included the Playboy channel. And neither one, none of us ever said anything about it. We went for a couple of months, and then finally somebody said something to somebody else, and we're like, yeah, you know what, that, that needs to go. We kind of stumbled upon it. Sad thing is, is that my roommates moved on. I found myself living by myself in that house for a little while, and even though we had had the landlord discontinue the, the subscription to the channel on the cable box, it was also about the same time that I had a computer in my house, and this was back in the days of Napster and Kazaa, and you could download music and movies and videos, all the things you wanted to for free, which actually is called stealing. Um, that's a whole nother issue. And so I would go and I would try to download music because I liked music, and then I stumbled upon some inappropriate content one day. I wasn't there for that, but it showed up. All of a sudden, the next day, it showed up again, and then it showed up again. And then I found myself not just sitting down looking for music, but looking for the explicit content. And I found myself in a prison of sexual sin. And it was difficult to walk out of that, but I had to recognize that. I had to admit that that was a problem, that, that was a temptation that the enemy wanted to use to destroy my life. I think it's an important one that is a major issue in our country the percentage of people, men and women, who wrestle with some sort of pornographic addiction is significantly high. The numbers range anywhere from 75 to 96%. I read this week that the average child today is exposed to 
inappropriate sexual content on a device at the age of 11. We've gotta be paying attention. His enemy wants to sneak in when you're weak, when you're vulnerable, and begin to draw you away so that he can destroy you. So what is that primary area for you? It forces the next question, when is the opportune time for that temptation? I said it's when you're weak, it's when you're vulnerable, it's when you feel isolated and alone. That's often when we find ourselves falling into that temptation. Maybe it's an environment that you spend time in. Maybe it's a group of people that you begin to associate with. And it seems like every time you're in that place or in that space or hanging out with those people, you find yourself in these moments that are compromising to you and the life that you want for yourself. And you begin to ask yourself, why did I do that? I I told myself I would never do that again. Where are those moments? I think it's important to be alert and aware of what those things are. The third question is this, what must I do to avoid this temptation? And this is the most difficult step. It's, it's one thing to identify the issue. It's, it's a little bit more difficult to begin to recognize where the issue happens, but to this step, this third step, like what do I do to avoid that temptation? What do I do so that I don't ever fall off the edge? This is, requires some drastic measures. Maybe for you, that Pornographic addiction is the thing that's, that's, that's robbing you of life, the life that God has for you. And maybe the step that's drastic that God's calling you to take is to get rid of that smartphone and trade it in for a flip phone for a season until you can win that battle in your life and stop giving the enemy power over you with that battle. And you're like, Wes, that's, that's crazy. Like, that's what I use for everything. That's how I stay connected to people. That's how I stay connected to the world. That's how I do my work. Listen, I didn't say it would be convenient, but a little bit of inconvenience might protect you from some really difficult days. Maybe there's some relationships that are unhealthy. Maybe there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a woman or a man at the place that you work or some place that you spend time and you've noticed the relationship's starting to get a little bit too close. What do you do in that moment? Do you just kind of let it be and think, oh, you know what, I got this. Deceive ourselves, I'm strong enough. I can handle this, I can fix this. Maybe the drastic step that God's calling you to take is to quit your job, to walk away from it. And you're like, Wes, that's insane. Like, you're telling me to be unemployed. Listen, I would say it would be better to be unemployed than to allow that relationship to develop into something that's gonna rob the joy, not just from your life, but from the life of your entire family. I believe that when you begin to take a step of obedience that God is calling you to take, he's going to provide another way. Maybe that's the step that he is calling someone to take today. Maybe the step is just to get some help. I was thinking about this yesterday. I was talking to Brandy about it, and I was like, man, I know this sounds extreme. Here's why I say that. Here's why it has to be extreme. This is why it has to be drastic. It comes with a cost. To take drastic steps is incredibly costly, but it's never as costly as it will be if you determine to never take a step. The inflation rate of temptation is a rate you don't wanna have anything to do with. It will wreck, it will rob, it will destroy you and the people around you. So it might be time to take that drastic step. And in taking that step, you've gotta answer this fourth question, what will I do instead? It's not enough to just take something off or to remove something from my life. I've got to replace it with something. 
And so if it's a, it's a habit or it's a routine that I participate in and I, I don't wanna do that anymore, I don't wanna go there anymore, so what am I gonna do instead? I'm gonna go to the gym, am I gonna listen to a podcast, am I gonna spend time praying? Maybe even in the moment when temptation shows up, you just begin to stop right there in that moment and say, God, right now, I, just, I pray that you would lead me from temptation and deliver me from evil right now in this moment. And I believe he'll answer you in that moment. He'll begin to give you that strength. But what is it that, he needs, that you need to replace? You know, for some, maybe the, the issue is some sort of an addiction. In just a couple of weeks, we've got a recovery toolbox happening through our counseling center on Tuesday nights from 6.30 to 8 o'clock for six weeks. And this might be the step that God is calling you to take to replace something else in your life with this, to begin to find some breakthrough, to begin to find some coping mechanisms to deal with a, an addiction or a tendency or a habit that maybe has been controlling you for, for years, maybe an entire lifetime, maybe for generations in your family. And maybe what God wants to do is use this to bring breakthrough in your life. If you wanna jump into that, you can text TOOLBOX to 28100. Maybe right now you're like, I don't wanna do this right now. People are watching me. I hope that you can just remember that. TOOLBOX, 281. That's a Houston zip code, zero, zero. Toolbox to 28100. And see what God wants to do in that as you step into it. The last thing is this, accusation. Deception, temptation, accusation. The enemy wants to deceive you. He wants to tempt you. He wants to bait you. And then once you've fallen off the edge, you've fallen off the cliff, he wants to throw shame at you. He wants to throw shade at you. He wants to laugh at you. He wants to make you feel worthless because of what you've chosen to do that he led you to do. This is what the enemy thrives on. The enemy is living his best life. When you find yourself in a place of destruction, wrecking yourself because you've listened to his lies and you've responded and acted to the things that are in front of you that bring hurt and pain. We all have these areas and we all fall into a place where we begin to feel shameful. And he wants to remind you in those moments, you're not who you thought you were. You're not who they thought you were. You'll always be an addict. Man, you, you fell for that again. It's these kind of lies. He wants to remind you of them. Why? Because he knows what you're capable of. And he doesn't want that for you. And he doesn't want that for the people around you. He wants you to feel disqualified and weak and inadequate. And I know for some today, you're in this place where that's you. You've been in this place of hiding You've been in this continual prison, in this struggle, frustrated that you continue to do the things that you said you would never do again. There's freedom available to you. This pattern of deception and temptation and accusation doesn't have to continue anymore. The victory is yours, but you have to choose to step into it. You have to choose to live in it. You have to choose to fight from that victory rather than for the victory. This is what Jesus showed up for. He showed up so that you could live with courage. Galatians 5 verse 1 says this, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Why did Jesus do what he did to set us free? Why do we remember Jesus through communion? Because he gives us freedom, not one day somewhere down the road, but today. And today is a day that we get to step into that Jesus knows what you're capable of. Jesus knows what's possible for you, for your life, but we buy into the lie. We believe the lie, we concede our brokenness. The truth is, is that you're not good enough and neither am I. 
which is why I trust Jesus. Have you ever noticed, I didn't say this in the first service, have you, have you ever noticed that people who really know Jesus, who have really experienced the hope and the freedom in Jesus, have you ever noticed how crazy, radical, radically vulnerable they are? They're willing to be transparent and honest and real. I remember the first person I really recognized this in, it was a guy named Jason Culverhouse. I was a senior in high school, and it really transformed my life. He was the first person I met that was a Jesus follower, but was also willing to take the mask off and let people see the real version of himself. That feels really uncomfortable. You know, several years ago, when I first shared about the struggle that I had with some sexual sin all the way back years ago, several people walked up to me and they said, man, I don't, I don't know how you, how you were able to even talk about that. As if it was the only thing I ever struggled with. The reality is, is I struggle with a lot of things. I can be incredibly arrogant sometimes. Pride can take over. I can begin to celebrate the faults of other people. I can, be becoming, I can find myself in this place where I just kind of become cold to my affection for my heavenly father. I can get to places sometimes where it's not that I want to do good things and trip up, but I just don't want to do the right thing. Like my want to is dysfunctional. That's the reality of living this life. You're like, Wes, how, how, why, why are you telling us this? The reason I'm telling you those things is because I haven't always been that way. I've not always been comfortable talking about where I kind of suck at life. But I think that's what happens when I begin to understand who Jesus is, I begin to experience him and I begin to trust him, that I become less aware of where I've failed and I become more consumed with what he's accomplished for me. And I begin to live and understand the freedom that he gave his life so that I could experience. You know what I realized the longer that I followed Jesus is that I'm actually a lot worse than I thought I was. But you know what else? I'm also a lot more loved than I thought was even possible. That's what he gave his life for. And he's inviting us to live in that freedom. Maybe today is the day that he's inviting you to live in that freedom. It's not about your performance. It's not about the scoreboard of your life. It's not about how you measure up with other people. It's about trusting Jesus. Saying, Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you did for me. Thank you for making me new. Thank you for making me well. Thank you for healing me. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for, give, thank you for giving my life a purpose. Thank you for doing all of that by giving your life for me, for being the only adequate sacrifice so that this was even possible. Maybe today's the day that you step across that line, you begin to experience that. You can change because you're free. In Christ, you can change because you're free. We get it backwards though. You don't have to change in order to be free. Freedom is already available. How do you live in that? How do you, how do you find that? With this, look what this verse says, James chapter four, verse seven. Submit therefore to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, but first you must submit. It's not until you have complete submission to God that you begin to enjoy complete freedom in life. So what would it look like to live in complete submission to God? I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna 
sing. We're going to respond to this by just singing and celebrating who Jesus is, who God is, what he did for us. And at some moment in that space as we're singing, you've got your communion elements there with you. You can pause and just reflect and remember who he is, examine yourself in light of who he is and what he's done for you. And then stand and sing, sing in celebration because this truth is available to us. And then go live in that this week. Don't let the deception and the temptation and the accusation have any more power in your life. Begin to live with the power that Jesus makes available to you. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that we are free, that we can be confident that the enemy has no power over us. I thank you that even the things that we'll continue to struggle with tomorrow and next week and next month, they'll never win. They'll never be able to claim victory over our lives because you've already done that. Remind us of that. Gotta pray that the voice of the enemy would have no place in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls, in our lives. We trust you. We remember the sacrifice that you made for us so we would have this chance of freedom. And we celebrate you for that. Listen, I'm gonna ask that you don't leave in this moment because I believe God wants to do something powerful and maybe he wants to do something powerful in you and you've got this desire to get up and leave and maybe the enemy is trying to deceive you and say, hey, you don't need to hear this. You don't need to do this. You don't need to celebrate this through communion. But maybe you're, that's exactly where God wants you to be. So let's remember Jesus through communion and sing out and worship him through song.
Father, thank you for today. God, I pray that what we've heard today would uh, not be just lost as we walk out these doors. God, I pray that you would protect us against the deception and temptation of the enemy, that we would no longer give him a voice in our minds to accuse us, to shame us, to push us back. God, I pray that we would see that the prison door is wide open and that freedom is available to every single one of us, not because of what we can do or accomplish, because of what you did. God, remind us of that. Would that be what's at the forefront of our minds this week? And would that shape something in us that's new? God, I pray for breakthrough. I pray for miracles. I pray for freedom from addictions, from unhealthy habits that maybe we've been walking through for, for years. God, I pray for a new confidence as we walk and live in your power. God, I pray that what's happened here today would not stay here, but it would go with us. It would work in us and through us, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our community. We thank you, we trust you, in Jesus' name, amen.